Hi, Manny Fitzsimmons. I'm your Washington Realtors Legal Hotline lawyer. And this is the first video in a series entitled A Fresh Look at Fair Housing. I am thrilled to be joined today by two subject matter experts. Would you introduce yourselves, please? Hi, I'm Deborah Blum, and I'm a realtor from Clark County, Washington. And I'm Andrea Buchanan. I'm the executive director of the Fair Housing Center of Washington. We are going to bring you a lot of good information in this video series. To start the discussion of fair housing, we, we have to start at the foundation. And the foundation of fair housing is the protected classes. So on your screen, you see three categories. The first category is the classes that are protected under federal law. The middle column is the classes that are protected under state law. In Washington state, if you are a real estate broker or a seller or really anybody involved in the housing industry, it is a violation of law for you to discriminate against any person with respect to housing if your discrimination is based on that person's membership in any protected class, both federal, federally protected, state protected. And then in that third column, which is just a bit of a question mark, those would be additional protected classes created by local law, local jurisdictions, cities and counties oftentimes can will create additional protected classes. And so there's no classes identified in that uh, graph at a statewide level, but you should check your local jurisdiction to see if there are any additionally protected classes. So let's get into this. When I am teaching fair housing, I often get the question, what does creed mean? What is that? You know, when we think about creed, it's really the perception of someone's belief system or their faith system. And so it's not one particular belief system or faith system like a religion, but it's the perception of what could be. So the way someone dresses could be an indicator of their creed, the way that they display items in their home, different symbols. Um, there are different ways that people can communicate their belief system. And so okay. creed is the perception of that. So okay. we're not necessarily discriminating against what they believe, um, but the Fair Housing Act wants to ensure that we're not um, treating people differently based also on our, on our perception of what they believe. Interesting. That is a nuance. For sure. What about age? How come age is not a protected class? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think a lot of times people think, you know, I'm young or I'm old, you know, and I'm experiencing these different um, inequities. And so why am I not protected under the Fair Housing Act? And so um, oftentimes we refer people to parts of the act that refer to familial status. So familial status is the protection of people who have guardianship or um, other types of uh, legal rights over people who are 18 years of age or younger. And so if there's the presence of someone 18 years or younger in the home, then that family is protected under the familial status category. Isn't it true that, that there doesn't even have to be a formal guardianship or adoption proceeding? It's, it's really truly just the, a person under the age of 18 residing in that household uh, triggers the protection Absolutely. under familial status. Is that right? Correct. So it doesn't necessarily have to be um, the legal guardianship, but it could be someone who's 
parent has said, you know, I give them permission to live in this home. Okay. Right. So um, absolutely. It's the presence of someone 18 years or older, sorry, 18 years or younger in the home. And then for Papua, the housing for older persons, um, that is your 55 and older and your 65 and older communities. And so for those individuals, they are being treated differently because of their age. And so they have these additional protections. And so that's part of why age isn't a universal protection under the act, because there are these kinds of set aside to make sure that people under 18 have rights and then people that are 55 and older and 65 and older also have rights that are specific to them. Right. In those older persons communities, there are specific regulations for creation of those communities for, for older persons. Right. And that can also limit the presence of children. And so, you know, these communities are for people who are, you know, older, they have different needs. And so um, there's this idea that you want to limit a minor's use of facilities in those places. Right. And, and I, one of the questions that comes up oftentimes when I'm teaching it, people find it interesting that um, the 55 plus community, for example, the 55 plus community requirements allow for people who are under the age of 55 to live in the community. But, but what most often happens, and tell me if this is your experience as well, once a community establishes that 55 plus community um once they're able to claim that, mm -hmm. then they prohibit anybody under the age of 55 from living there. Is that what your experience is? It is. And, and is that okay? Well, so it depends. A lot of times there is this uh, required set aside for uh, people who are not 55 and older, right? So a percentage of the units have to be available to people that are under the age of 55. But what happens sometimes is that like you said, um, you know, HOA, homeowners associations or, you know, condominium association uh, members will create these requirements where they're disregarding the fact that there has to be a set aside. And so they're making them exclusively 55 mm -hmm. and older and 65 and older when, in fact, a percentage of those units should be available for people who aren't. You just taught me something. I, I've never heard that there is supposed to be a set-aside. For all the years I've taught for housing, I've never heard that there's supposed to be a set-aside. Is that part of the federal regulation? Or say, either way, is that that's part of the state or federal regulations mm -hmm. that say in a 55-plus community, a certain number of the units should be set aside for occupancy by people who are not, that don't have a person who's 55 or older in their household? Correct. So the Housing, for, per, the housing for Older Persons um, Act has all of the specifics around, around that. Okay, nice. It'd be interesting to go back and look and see if those are um, retroactive, because I know that I've read through CCNRs that limit um, you can have somebody under the age of 55 living with you if they are a caretaker or if they're only there a certain number of days a week. Um, I know I've read those in CCNRs for 55-plus communities before, so it'd be really interesting to see if they should be going back retroactively right. To, right. to change that. Yeah, I hear about those communities a lot. I, I suspect they're just out of compliance. Mm -hmm. So on the subject of age, something that I feel like is a, a difficult um, protected class to identify both with buyers and sellers um, can be uh, that of mental capacity and disability. You can't always see that on a person. Um, but I know that I've had scenarios where I've had elderly um, clients that have wanted to list their home and 
they are repeating themselves or struggling to stay with me as I'm talking through the home selling process. And so I always kind of wonder, is there something more that I should be doing in that kind of a scenario? There's a distinction that has to be made with respect to your question, but but really in practice, I think that the distinction, it, it gets lost. And, and here's where I'm going with this. The fair housing laws, don't, they're not intended to protect sellers. They're intended to protect buyers. And you're describing a scenario where it may be a seller, it could be a buyer, but it may be a seller who has asked you to, to provide a listing consultation for them. And as you're talking to them, you have questions about their capacity. And so it may not be a strict application of the Fair Housing Act, but, but your question is very real and you have to confront this issue before you can move forward with this person. Mm -hmm. Because obviously this person cannot sell their property if they lack capacity. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to hear Adria's thoughts on this. I'm going to tell you what I normally tell brokers is you're not qualified to answer this question mm -hmm. for anybody. I'm not qualified to answer this question for anybody, but there is one person who is going to make sure that this question gets answered or the transaction will close. Hmm. And that's the escrow officer. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a in a closing where the closing actually stops in the middle of the signing process because the escrow officer is concerned about the capacity of the person signing as the seller and and they are not allowed to proceed in that case. And so, as it relates to real estate brokers, I typically recommend you punt to the escrow officer, to the title officer. At the time you take the listing, let them know, I have a concern with respect to this seller. Here's, here's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Will you insure title? Because that's really what it comes down to. That's why the escrow officer mm -hmm. has to stop is because the escrow officer who's making representations to the title company about the uh, the warrantability, the insurability of this title based on this seller's signature, if they lack capacity, title can't insure. And so it comes down to what a title insurance company and escrow company will do. And so I think that creates some safety for the real estate broker. But how do you see this issue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like a really complicated issue. And so, you know, the advice that I would have is really just to make sure you have a clear process, you know, and so you were talking about you punt to the escrow officer and, you know, our job as the Fair Housing Center is to make sure that everybody's being treated the same. You know, they are being treated the same based on what their protections are under the law. And so making sure that anytime you have a client where you're concerned about their capacity, you have documented next steps for how you are guiding them through that process, right? You have a client where you have a concern about their capacity. You're not treating this client differently and then saying, oh, well, you know, that's a slightly different situation or, you know, I kind of like this person a little bit more. So I'm going to, oh. you know, I'm not going to go through the steps that I would normally go through. Right. right? And so you want to make Where you sure. almost create barriers for one, but you allow the other to kind of slide through the process. Absolutely. Right. And so whether you are operating as an individual or you have a team, you want to make sure that everyone within that brokerage knows, okay, if I have a concern about a client, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so, you know, that's the best way to kind of ensure your, you know, your own uh, risk is managed and make sure that your your seller is equally protected. Yeah. I just heard the development of a firm policy for designated brokers. Your recommendation of creating a process applies at the individual broker level. What are you going to do as you encounter these scenarios, as well as at the firm level, designated brokers, do you have a firm policy that addresses what brokers should do in this scenario. Certainly you wouldn't have the same pro I mean, so 
where processes have to be, they have to be rigid. So everybody gets treated the same, but they also have to be flexible because many sellers you encounter, most sellers you encounter, you're not going to have any question hmm. as to their capacity. But so your process has to be flexible enough. Is this, is this fair to say? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, that you apply it only in a case where the seller has given you reason to question whether mm-hmm. or not you need to engage in this process. And then your process would be the same for every single seller that makes you ask those questions, right? right. I'm, I'm going to immediately have a conversation with a title officer or with an escrow officer or with my designated broker, whatever, and designated brokers, whatever you want your office policy to be. As always, we recommend that you work with your own firm's lawyer to develop those office policies, but you should have an office policy so that every single seller gets treated the same or the buyer in that case, if that's who it was. Great. All right. Well, we went a little far afield of, of uh, uh, protected classes, but this is a really good discussion. Thank you for bringing up that question uh, to get us started in this video series. Anything else before we take a break and move to the next series, to the next topic? No, I, I would just say that, you know, under the Fair Housing Act, the definition of disability is much broader than when we think about Americans with disabilities. And so, yeah, this question of capacity really is a good one because even if you refer to someone as having symptoms of a disability under the Fair Housing Act, you've given them those protections. And so when we think about capacity, mm-hmm. it just even how you refer to somebody, if you don't know for sure, but you think that they're exhibiting symptoms of something um, and you refer to them as having those symptoms, then you've protected them under the Fair Housing Act. So again, really wow. good question. I think I have a lot to learn in this. <laughs> <laughs> That's over right here. As always, if you have questions about anything we've covered in this video or anything else, please ask a question by visiting warealtor.org. Thank you for being a Washington Realtors member.